in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 15 this morning. I do want to tell you that uh, it, it's tough to, to talk about being gone. Uh, I am I was excited and encouraged that you were in capable hands last week. I thought Chris, uh, who, is, who is not, oh, he is in the room, did a fantastic job. We don't want his head to get too big. Um, but uh, he, he uh, we, we sat down Friday and we reviewed his message and we're going to get him, we're getting him set on another text and, uh, and we're going to get him back up here again. So it is good to be home. Uh, I had the, the blessing and privilege of being with Mount Laurel Evangelical Free Church, uh, their men's retreat, which is my brother's church. And so I got to minister to, to the men of his church. Uh, they did not laugh at any of my jokes. <laughs> not one of them the entire weekend. Um, you don't laugh at my jokes either, though. So, um, But you laugh at that. You guys think that's funny. Uh, we had this, we, we uh, so you're always, when you go away, you're with another worship leader, you know, and, and it's always kind of like, you know, will it be good, will it not be good, and uh, so we're, the, the guy's breaking out all these songs that I know, like Your Name, you know, uh, Your Name is a Strong and Mighty Tower, Your Name is a Shelter Like No Other, uh, Your Name, Let the Nation Sing It Louder, and I'm like, yes, I know this, I'm going to get into it. Because nothing has the power to save, but your name, they don't do that. I'm there doing it, you know, singing it, and I open up my eyes, and they're all like, you want to you be the worship leader? Um, I'm like, where's Brian? I need, I need my guy. I need to sing the way we sing. Uh, it's good to be with brothers and sisters, but it's, it's not home. And so it's good to be back among you this morning. Um, we're going to uh, read Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 and, and reading to verse 23 this morning as we uh, move out of that first unit, and we're, we're going to be camping here for a little bit. Um, let's read. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Will you pray with me as we turn to the word? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear the words of your servant Paul. We do confess and believe that these words, the words of the scripture, from the first word in Genesis to the last word in Revelation, these are your words to us, and they are faithful and good and true. And we confess, like Joshua, that not one word of all the good promises that you made has failed. We thank you for this word. We thank you that it is a guide to our hearts and minds. And we pray that as we turn to this word, Father, and as we hear Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, which is a prayer that he could have easily prayed for us, a prayer which we believe speaks to us today, Father, I pray that we would know and that you would open the eyes of our hearts and we might receive enlightenment this morning as we tap in to your word. Speak to us now, we pray, and speak to us about the hope that we have been called to. We pray this in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, by way of introduction this morning, uh, I have no fancy story. I just want to describe what we have seen in the first 14 verses and then set the stage for 
a phrase from verse 18 as we explore that this morning. The first 14 verses of this letter we've explored over the past four weeks that I've been up in the pulpit. And um, what we have seen is that Paul is rehearsing. He is, he is pronouncing a blessing to God, praising God for what God has blessed the church with. He has uh, cataloged nine salvation blessings, blessings from the Father, blessings that come through the Son, and blessings that come by the power of the Holy Spirit in each believer's life. And this blessing from verse 3 all the way to verse 14 is a crescendo of praise. It's kind of a praise song that, that moves through the person of the Father and then to the work of the Son and then to the power of the Holy Spirit, which sums up in Paul saying that we should be to the praise of his glory. Much like the, the, the last song that we sang, how, how we're praising God for all that he is for us, all that he does, all that he will be to us for all eternity. And so Paul begins with this blessing, knowing that everything he's going to say for the rest of the book is built on these first verses. Then he moves to praying for and thanking God for the recipients of the letter. Now, when I say that this is standard letter-writing stuff for that day and age, don't think that it's not genuine. But much correspondence that we can read from back in this time in history has this pattern where the writer addresses himself, he, he tells who his audience is, he gives a greeting, then he will thank who, whatever God he worships and pray. Paul, though, when he does this, he doesn't just use this as an opportunity to kind of sign off some, some greetings like we might when somebody sneezes and we say almost thought, thoughtlessly, God bless you, right? I mean, do we really, do we really think when, when, we, when somebody sneezes, are we really saying, now, brother or sister, may the God, the God who created heaven, the God who created heaven and earth and who sent his son Jesus, may he abundantly, richly bless you in all that you do. No, we're just kind of like, God bless you which is much what people in that culture would do. They would write a wish, a blessing. Paul, though, takes this as an opportunity to say what he's been laboring over in prayer for them, what he has been praying for, and what he hopes that they will come to know. Okay? Let's look at our, our text here. Paul says, For this reason, okay, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul is convinced that these are true, solid, faithful believers. He's heard of their true belief. Verse 15 says he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Now, just in case anybody thinks that John Calvin's all like predestination and election, there's a, he's got a great quote that doesn't have anything to do with any of that. He says this, observe here. Calvin's just, he's such a pastor. I love him. Observe here that under faith and love, Paul sums up the whole perfection of Christians. He says faith in Christ because Christ is properly the aim and object of faith. Love ought to embrace all men, but here the saints are especially mentioned because love, properly ordered, begins with them and then flows to all others. What we see in the first verses of this letter is the gospel itself. From verse 3 to verse 14, Paul lays out the richest blessings of the gospel, and then he says this, you, Ephesians, are people who are living in the good of the gospel. Ground floor commitment. They have put their faith in Christ. But they've gone up to the next floor as well. And they are overflowing now, not just a basic ascent, not just saying, I am a Christian, I go to church, I believe in Jesus, I own seven study Bibles, but they put their faith in Christ and then they begin to excel in love towards others. And Paul is able to say, I've heard these things. You truly love people. You truly believe in Jesus. You are truly believers. What he's discussing here is the basics. For Christians, 
We believe that this is the basics. Faith in Jesus and love toward others. You never outgrow your need for the basics, do you? But yet for so many Christians, we can become obsessed with doctrine at times, can't we? We can become obsessed with the politics of doing church. We can become obsessed with how we love this particular teacher or we don't like that particular teacher and we can fire shots at them or, or, or try to get other people to attend this church or that church. And, and we, we are not about the business of the kingdom, which is trusting in the reality of who Jesus is and loving other believers. Jesus said this is how people would know that we're his disciples. Paul knows that they are true believers, and so he prays with thanksgiving. What is he praying for, though? He says, I don't cease to give thanks for you. I remember you in my prayers. That probably means he's saying, God, I ask that, that you, would, you would bless the Ephesians. Thank you for those people. Then he probably lists some names, and he says, I know that this one has a church in their house, and that one is, is serving as an elder, and he's remembering them. He's, he's calling them to mind, praying for them. He says he does this all the time, but he's praying for something specific. He's praying with an agenda. And here it is in verse 17. He says, I remember you in my prayers, and this is what he's praying, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, talk about this next week. Uh, you could translate this, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. Paul is praying that God would give them a spirit. This is either an attitude that they might have, or it is that he would give them, in the power of the Holy Spirit, a greater awareness of wisdom and revelation. The Greek is kind of ambiguous here. It could be either or. Not really a big deal. Um, he does not cease praying that God would give them greater awareness of the truths of the gospel. I'll talk just in a moment about why, why it doesn't matter if it's a spirit or, or the spirit. Okay? What Paul is praying for is that they would have a deep wisdom and a deep sense of, of knowledge of God's character. So much so that the eyes of their hearts. I love this expression, that the eyes of their, their hearts would be enlightened and that they would know. He's not just talking about facts. You may have sat through the last four sermons and know all the facts in verses 3 through 14, but he's not talking about just knowledge of facts, but a deep, experiential, practical knowledge, okay? Now, let me, let me talk about Known facts in Keith Meyer's life, okay? Vacuum cleaners are important, right? You want to have a functioning, working, operable vacuum cleaner in your home, right? My wife thinks the vacuum cleaner is important. She, by her very nature, I declutter. She is the cleaner. She thinks the vacuum cleaner is very important. Deep experiential knowledge will tell you, though, that she does not like a vacuum cleaner for Christmas. <laughs> that is not a good gift. Now, you can learn this, brothers. Brothers. You can learn this through pain, or you can learn this by receiving it and hearing it with wisdom. 2003 was a long time ago, all right? God is good. His grace is abundant. Now, what he is saying, what he is praying here, is that they would have a deep, experiential knowledge of the truths of the gospel, but also that they, that they would know some other things, which he's going to say. I'm going to talk about the three knowledges in just a moment, and, and we're going to look at each one in each of the next three weeks. Paul, Paul is praying that, that God would give them a spirit of revelation, that they would understand and perceive what it is that, that, that God has done for them, that they would not just know it like, yeah, we know those facts, and 
yeah, got it, what's next, but that they would know them in a deep, real, experiential, wise kind of a way. Now, here's, here's the dilemma, okay? We just said in verses 3 through 14 that we had every spiritual blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You said, Pastor Keith, that we have every spiritual blessing. True. Totally true. So does God need to give me more of the Holy Spirit? Or does he need to continue to, to shape and to change my spirit? I thought I was saved and sealed. Yes, that is true. William Hendrickson, a commentator, has said this. That, that whether the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in view, or whether the changed, regenerated, reformed, made alive spirit of the believer is in view, what is already present in them must be strengthened. What is already alive and active within us, whether it is the, the, the Holy Spirit himself, or whether it is our spirit which has been made alive by the gospel, what's already present in the believer's life must be strengthened. So Paul is praying that God would grant them this spirit and that they would grow in wisdom and knowledge. This shows up a couple times in scriptures. Ephesians 3.16, Paul says, According to the riches of his glory, may God grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The believer has what he needs or she needs to begin their walk with God, but they need to be strengthened. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he, that is God the Father, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What Paul is praying is that these believers would so see the light of God's revelation to them, the, the, the true awareness of what God has done for them in the gospel, and that the eyelids of their heart core center of their being, that their, that their eyes would be opened wider and wider and that they would know the reality of what God has done for them in the gospel. Okay? Principle and then the introduction to these three knowledges will be over and we're going to get into the first one. Here's the, here's the last principle. Paul is praying that they may know. Because as believers, when we know we grow. When we know, we grow. The best fertilizer for Christian growth is not merely faith or expressing love, but true knowledge. Okay? John Stott says this, growth in knowledge is indispensable to growth in holiness. I love what Warren Wearsby has said on the subject. He says, to know God personally is salvation. We see this in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, to know Jesus Christ. To know God personally is salvation. To know God increasingly is sanctification. To know God perfectly is glorification. Now, if you're, if you're wondering about a Christmas gift for your Bible reading spouse or, or someone that you love um, who, who's, who's looking for some additional help on the scripture, I could recommend no better than my, my very good friend, Matthew Henry. Okay, I've got a picture of him I want to put up on the screen because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to you from him for just a couple moments because I think he summarizes everything that I have said up to this point, okay? Behold him in all of his awesomeness right there. I love this guy. I wish I could dress like that. Wind the, wind the clock back. This Halloween. Next Halloween. He says this. You can get his single volume Bible commentary. I love it. Paul's earnest prayer to God on behalf of these Ephesians. He has stored up these spiritual blessings for us in the hands of his son. He has appointed us to draw them out and to bring them in through prayer. 
We have no part or lot in the matter any further than we claim it through faith and prayer. What he's saying here is that God has done all things for us in the gospel. He's given us the good of the gospel, and now we just need to say, yes, we believe it, and we're going to trust in it. And the more that we know, the more that we will grow. Now, this is what he says here. He's he's summing up what Paul is saying about about praying and, and thanksgiving. He says, the graces and comforts of the Spirit are communicated to the soul by the enlightening of the understanding. Okay? We receive the blessings of, of, the God, of, of God's goodness in the gospel. We, we appropriate them to our soul by our knowledge. He goes on. Satan takes a contrary way. He gets possession by the senses and the passions. Christ by the understanding. I love that. That's so good. I've said about him before. You could put this stuff in fortune cookies. Sell it at a Christian bookstore. Christians should not think it enough that they have warm affections, but they should labor to have clear understandings. They should be ambitious of being knowledgeable Christians and judicious Christians. What he's saying here is that the more that we are aware, the more that we believe, the more that we see the reality of our faith, the reality of what God has done for us in the gospel working out in our life, the more that we know the word, the more that we believe the truths in the word, the more that that we experience them active in our life, the greater the change in our life will be. It's not just being a loving person, although that is important. It's about seeing God clearly, letting the light of God's revelation penetrate our heart so that we will have understanding. This is what Paul is praying for them. But he prays about three specific things, okay? It was a long intro, intro over. Moving in to the actual sermon. Three massive pieces of information. We see one in verse 18a. Paul says that he's praying that they may know. And then he mentions What is the hope to which he's called you? Second, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And third, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? I call this the Oreo cookie right here. I'll explain next week, but next week is the center. It's the cream filling. I I have not found a phrase in this book that I delight in more yet. (laughs) I might. This is the the top part of the cookie here, okay? And the the, the bottom of the cookie is is the third part, and it's just like it. Three knowledges so that we will not forget God's face. We will not forget his benefits toward us and drift away from him, walking through our life in a drudgery of religion. He says that he prays that God would give them an understanding that they would know what the hope is to which He's called us. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, let me phrase it this way. If God is calling you in the gospel, if he's calling you to himself, and I believe he is, Jesus went to the cross so that whosoever will could come to him and know that God loves them and that they can be saved from their own sins. What is it? What is God calling you to? What is he drawing you into relationship with him for? And let me urge you to, to run to him, to call upon him and to be saved. Now, I said I love Matthew Henry. I love him. Is he still up there? No? All right, good. I'm about to insult him. Um, two, two, this is typical of the commentaries I, ran, I, was, I was studying as I'm getting ready. Paul has given this massive buildup. And then he says that he wants us to know the hope that we've been called to. And then I read... In, in, my, in my commentaries, in my books, I hear phrases like this. A gentleman by the name of, of Constable, who, who I love, Tom, Dr. Thomas Constable. I think he's a great man. I enjoy his commentary. But he says this. Every Christian should appreciate his or her sure hope for the future that rests on his or her calling to salvation in the past. And then he moves on. And that's it. That's all he tells us. Matthew Henry says this. We ought to labor after and pray earnestly for 
a clearer insight into and a fuller acquaintance with the great objects of a Christian's hope. And that's it. So I come to this text and I'm like, what is the hope of his calling? What does that even mean? What is the hope that God calls us to? So let us explore, as we, as we take the balance of our time this morning, let's explore the hope that God calls us to. When we refer to calling in the scripture, we're not talking about vocation. You know, you would, you would say, I have a calling as a carpenter. Pastor Keith has a call from God on his life to preach the gospel. That's not what he's referring to here. He's talking, when he talks about calling, he's speaking of the action by which God draws people to himself. God is the ultimate evangelist. God is the one who is preaching the gospel primarily. God is a missionary God who is going out into the world to proclaim the truth of his word so that people might hear it and believe. And he's calling people to himself. The calling of God is a spoken message that changes your life. A couple months ago, um, my phone buzzes, and I, I realize that I have a new text, and I open up the text, and there's this image I cannot make out. And I'm like, what? And on the bottom of it, it just says, congratulations. And I look at it again, and I'm like, okay, this is from my wife. What is this? She has sent me a, a picture of a pregnancy test. And I'm like, okay, congratulations means... It's positive. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Life is different on the other side of that message. <laughs> right? I get some text messages. They're like, you know, hope to see you soon. You know, all kind of, and I'm just like, yeah, okay. Click, 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 click. And I, and I go on and I forget. And someone's like, hey, didn't I text you? Oh, yeah. This, you can't, you can't walk away from this. You, you just, you, you can't forget this. You're like, what does this mean? <laughs> what happens now? How do I feed this child? Um, there are messages which change our life. And God is in the world speaking a call. The call, we're going to do a little New Testament survey here of, of the call. The call is an upward call and it demands our energetic response. Philippians 3.14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God calls two people and he says, receive and believe this message. It's an upward call and it demands a response from us. As Chris adequately, I think wonderfully described last week, this call involves a process of refinement. To this end, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.11, to this end we pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. God calls us into a process that will involve us being refined. It's an offer that involves a gift but also a change. It's also an undoable process. Romans 11.29 says this, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Have you ever done anything on your computer, right? Um, you're, you're, you're working and it says, are you sure you want to permanently delete all these files? And you're like, yes. And then it's like, are you sure that you're sure? You will not be able to undo this. And you click yes. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. Gone. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God calls us to himself, it is a secure, unchangeable, irrevocable, unstoppable call. But at the same time, it is something which we are responsible for. 2 Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election secure. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. It's essential that when we hear the voice of God speaking to us, when we hear the message of the gospel, that we persevere in belief and appropriation of it. And if God says, don't do this anymore, that's bad for you, we say yes. And if he says, now love other people, we say yes. Now believe this, we say yes. We persevere. The call of God humbles, but encourages. It has purpose. It eliminates boasting in ourselves. 
And it frees us from a need to maintain or to perform. Listen to this. Speaking of their salvation, Paul says to the Corinthians, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. I think that means the most insignificant, pathetic things. To bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I love this. This is so good. Verse 30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God's call on our lives, by no grace or strength of our own, God comes to us and says, Will you be my child? Will you be in relationship with me? I will forgive your sins. I will bring you back to life. I will give you all the goodness that I possess through no virtue of your own, but purely on my goodness. Nothing you can do can stop it. Who's worthy of this? None of us. Paul says in Ephesians 4.1 that we're not worthy of the call, but we're called to walk in a manner worthy of it. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Is God calling you into a relationship with him this morning? If you have never believed in the gospel, If you've never put your full faith and trust in Jesus, let me tell you this. You are cut off from the goodness of God. You are separated from any eternal reward, from any hope, and from any possibility of receiving any goodness from God throughout eternity, and you will receive nothing but wrath. But God is good, and he calls to each and every man and woman and child to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to receive forgiveness. God calls, will you answer? But he doesn't just call us into a life of religion and drudgery. He calls us, the scripture says, to hope. Paul prays that we would know what the hope of his calling is. And he knows that as we believe this, as we receive it, as we write this truth on our hearts, it will have a power in our lives. And I want to I talk about hope as we finish. Hope, what hope isn't. I want to talk about what hope is, where it's rooted, and then what it produces as we, as we finish. What, what hope isn't. It's hard to say. What hope is not. What What's not hope? Um, Hope isn't the way we use it today in our modern culture, okay? When we speak about hope today, we talk about desire or wish. Many times when people use the the word hope, they are crediting things to coincidence or praying for a miracle, right? Saying things like, I hope the sun will shine tomorrow. Newscasters will say, for now, all we can do is hope and pray. We can only hope. This is atheistic hope. Hope built on coincidence or chance. Mere wish or desire. Like somebody saying, I hope the economy gets better. Right? Like maybe that'll just happen. (laughs) Thank you for at least an attempt at laughter there, one of you. it's like saying, hey, you never know. Let's, let's hope. But that's not hope. Hope is not just a desire or a wish. Though I confess this, before I really dug into this, that's the way I, I treated hope. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, Paul speaks of a better 
hope. Paul teaches us in Ephesians 4 that we were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We've been called to hope. Not just to desire. Not just a wish. Not just a hope. Not just a a, a possibility that these things will happen. We're not just like, hey, maybe God will make good on all his promises. Instead, hope is a confident expectation. It's a solid assurance. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 says, Hope does not put us to shame. Hope will not leave us out in the cold. We will not be abandoned, and yet hope remains unseen. And we need to conceive of it and press forward in our hope, in faith, even though we do not see the reality of it. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 24. He says, For in this hope we were saved. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what is our hope then? It's a confident expectation, a sure assurance, a solid assurance. Galatians 5.5 calls our hope the hope of of righteousness. I know that, that in, my, in my conscience, I know that there are things which I believe are right. And yet, there are times where I, I find myself doing things that I know are wrong. And I transgress and sin against my own conscience, and now I say, how can I expect to receive any good from God when I have done wrong? But Paul says this, You have a confident expectation as a Christian that there is righteousness for you. He speaks of the hope of righteousness. We believe that we receive this righteousness in the gospel. That God takes all of our sins and places them on Christ, crushing him on our behalf in our place so that we do not need to face judgment. Then God takes his good righteousness, the full record of his righteousness, and he credits it to us. When I hear that, when you hear that, is your response to that, hey, you never know. Could happen. That's not hope. Hope says this. I do not feel righteous. And I see evidence of unrighteousness. But I know there is a promise that God will give me righteousness. And so I live like I've been called to it. And I do everything I can to fight sin. Because God sees me as righteous and one day in his presence I will be righteous. That's hope. Paul speaks of the hope of the gospel. He also, in Titus chapter 1, says, Being justified by his grace... We become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I know that in this body that I decay and I struggle and I suffer. My hair's getting gray. My eyesight's getting bad. My back hurts. My knee hurts. Falling apart. But I know that there's a life to be given that will endure forever. There's also the possibility... See, I'm using the word the way that I use it. It's not a possibility. We should have a confident expectation of life in the presence of God, unafraid. This, too, is our hope. Romans 5.2 says, Through Jesus, we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We'll stand with God in all and see all of his gloriousness and majesty and splendor, and we will not be afraid like Isaiah. I think if Isaiah were to sing a song like, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. Right? If, he would never sing that song because when he sang it in Isaiah chapter 6, he went to the temple, he rejoiced in God, he saw God, and he said, Woe is me, I'm sinful. I'm destroyed. I'm undone. And each one of us would do that if we did not receive grace from God and were able to stand in his presence clean and righteous and be unafraid. That, too, is our confident expectation. But we also hope 
as we sang in the last song, of the liberation and the coming restoration of all of creation. Romans 8, verse 19 says this, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God put creation in subjection in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All creation groans with this confident expectation that God will make all things new one day. The Christian's hope is of rescue from this world, rescue from suffering, rescue from death, rescue from pain. Paul describes it this way in Titus chapter 2. He says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so let me encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters, to be armed and to be strong in this truth. That we have a confident expectation of deliverance. Paul says that we ought to put on as a helmet to guard ourselves the hope of salvation in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. So be strong in this truth. Where is our hope rooted, though? What's the foundation? We, there are all these things that we've talked about, being in the presence of God, the liberation of creation, rescue from the world of suffering, uh, uh, righteousness, eternal life. Where is this all rooted? It is rooted in one singular person, in Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.1 that Jesus Christ is our hope. The old hymn goes like this, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground sinking sand. Colossians 1.27, Paul says that the mystery of the gospel is this, Christ in you. The hope of glory. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, he says that we have this. We have this truth as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is what we ought to tie our ropes to. Not to our 401k, not to our health insurance plan, not to our job, not to our spouse, not to the goodness of our children, not, not, to, not to our minds. But to this truth that we have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become our high priest. This is the anchor for our soul, a confident expectation. And this sermon's just going to finish in just five minutes. It's just going to stop, okay? I'm not even going to try to land this plane because I just want to talk about what it produces in us? What should this confident expectation, God has called us into relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, he is calling you. He will give you grace and mercy. He wants to show you love. He wants to forgive every sin you've ever committed, every sin you ever will commit by giving you the righteousness of Christ. You can have it. All you need to do is believe that he's given it to you in the work of Jesus on the cross. What does it produce? Seven things. It should produce joy. Romans 5.2 says, Through him we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Isn't this good news? I mean, we're sinners. I know some of you better than I know others. We are a bunch of wretched people. but we're going to stand in God's presence righteous. That's good news. We ought to experience joy. It also ought to cause rejoicing. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 12, rejoice in hope, right? I got a pain in my knee, my back hurts, but guess what? I'm getting a new body. This is good news. 
It ought to give us boldness. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. What's the worst that's going to happen if you share the gospel with your waitress? She'll slap you across the face. Is, it, is she going to do that? No. I mean, really, let's be bold, folks. We have life forever. Righteousness from God. Let's be bold. Let's also do it with gentleness and respect, like 1 Peter says. Uh, Peter, Peter says it in, in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense or to give an explanation to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. Hope also ought to produce endurance in us. Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God's made all these promises. He's not like that kid who keeps saying, you can come to my birthday party, maybe. You can come, maybe. Right? I've forgiven that kid. <laughs> hope also produces faith and love. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Huh, I think he said that somewhere else. Why do they love the saints? Why do they put their faith in Christ Jesus? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. I have a hope that I can love Anyone God puts in my path. And I can trust Jesus because no matter what happens, I am confident that I will make it to the end. That God will give me the righteousness that he's promised. And that I'll stand in his presence so it doesn't matter what people do. Finally, as we end, it produces purity. Thinking about the blessed appearing, which is our blessed hope. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, in this moment. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Himself purifies Himself as He is pure. Brothers and sisters, we ought to shut things off of our TV. We ought to hang up on cell phone calls. We ought to stop in the middle of saying something to our spouse when we know that we're being rude and say, I am not going to finish that sentence because it's sinful, because one day I will be righteous. And I trust with great hope in that. And I'm not going to defile myself because I'm going to be pure like he is pure. And I'm going to purify myself now. Paul prays that we would know these things. And I pray for this church. I pray for you, my brothers and sisters. Pray for me that we would have this soul anchor, this fervent yearning, this confident expectation what the hope to which he calls us is. Christ-centered, God-satisfied assurance, which becomes a living, sanctifying force that drives our souls. Hope in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your graciousness toward us. Father, I pray that each and every one of us would know that we would come to greater and greater levels of understanding. That we would have experiential knowledge, Lord, as we struggle with physical illness. As we face pain in life. As we, as we respond to fear and perhaps shrink back from sharing the gospel at first, but then, but then push through it. Father, I pray that we would know, because you have shown it to us, the hope to which you've called us. Father, may we never think of, of the gifts that you've given to us in the gospel as possibilities. You never know. Maybe it's all true. But that we would have a confident expectation because of what you've done for us. Father, may we live in this hope. May we purify ourselves because of it. May we be bold. May we persevere in faith. 
May we do great works of faith and acts of love, not because we're good, but because you are good. We thank you. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who knows that, there's a, that they are a sinner, who has no hope, I pray that they would put their trust in you. And I pray if they do that, that they would tell someone about it so that they can become connected to other believers and grow. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness toward us. We pray your blessing on us as we close. In Jesus' name, amen. Trembles at his voice. Trembles at his voice. How great.